We're in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26 today in our series, and the title of the message is Selflessness Illustrated and Expected. Last week, we were fortunate to have a guest speaker from Boise Bible College, and some of you noticed there were similarities in our speaking styles, probably because we had some of the same professors. So, And the president of Boise Bible College also graduated Ozark and was there same time I was. Now remember, we just had the triumphal entry. That's what the discussion was last week. And we land in verse 20 today. John chapter 12, verse 20. I'll read a couple of verses. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now this is an interesting little piece because if you're a Bible student and you want to study and look ahead and try to find out answers to questions that would reasonably come to mind, you might find yourself coming a little bit short on this one because John never goes back and deals with it after he introduces this. We don't find out what Jesus did with these Greeks. It's an interesting thing. But let's look at this piece by piece as you see it up on the screen behind me or on your Bibles in front of you. It mentions that there were some Greeks there. This is not the norm. These would be Gentiles. But they are participating in a Jewish feast. So they have been converted to Judaism, and yet the Jews look at people who've converted to Judaism as not legitimate. It's the way it's been for many, many years. Jesus comes, and he changes all of that, but we're in in the middle of this. So it's interesting that they go to Philip, and you might not know this unless you do some etymology on the name. Philip is a Greek name. Aha. It's easier to approach Philip. But it's an interesting behavior that Philip does next. Instead of just rushing to Jesus, hey, these people want to see you. Instead, he goes to Andrew, another Greek name. Ah, isn't that interesting? And after consulting, apparently, the two of them decide, okay, we'll take this to Jesus. Isn't it intriguing that they didn't just, the Greeks didn't just go to Jesus? They approached people who have Greek names to get some kind of permission to approach Jesus. And if you want to get some background on why this is the way it is, if you go back into Matthew chapter 16, I'll read to you about the Canaanite woman. We'll start with verse 21 or Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her, not a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
It gets even stronger language. Look, at, we'll continue reading, verse twenty-five. But she came and knelt before him, saying, "Lord, help me." And he answered, "It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." She said, "Yes, Lord." Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now that's a little strong of Jesus to kind of push her away like that. And you'll get some of this as we move along in our text in John, but he came first for his people the lost people, his people that for so many years had thought they had it all figured out, but they didn't. And so his attention first was for them. That's what he said. She persists. Her faith is very strong. She's a Gentile. And then he basically says, I'm here to take care of these. This is where my attention needs to be right now. And you should, the hard thing is, we get our heads, we get our hearts wrapped around what Jesus said there to her because it seems so harsh. Instead of getting our heads wrapped around, sometimes Jesus stiff, ar- stiff arms us as well. You might be saying, uh, Lord, I really need this to happen in my life, whatever it may be, and it doesn't happen. And then later, things fall into place and you realize, I see what he was doing. He had a better plan. You've had that, right? That's what he does. And so he's got a plan, and this is not part of the plan according to what he's saying. Oh, no, I'm not doing this, but then he did it. And we'll look at some more passages that are similar as we move along so we get some background in our text. It shouldn't surprise you also that the disciples had, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, even after Jesus rose from the dead, they still thought Jesus was stiff-arming non-Jews. Gentiles, you're not allowed. And yet, remember, there's a vision that Peter has, and Jesus emphasizes you have to welcome them. Everyone is welcome now. I did what I needed to do. Everyone can be welcomed into the kingdom. doesn't matter who you are. But you can understand the disciples wouldn't just rush and take people to Jesus, especially if they were not Jewish. And then I want to show you some insight we get from 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter, chapter 1, and we'll start reading with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, isn't that interesting? In this world that we live in today, it seems like we we can understand that. We'll continue with second part of verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've tried to share a scripture with somebody who doesn't want to hear it. And to them, it means nothing. But to us, it's life and power. So let's go back to the verses I read before in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. Philip and Andrew told Jesus that there were some Greeks that wanted to speak to him. Now, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you click it, it'll do the last one. There you go. So that might be a little odd. Most of us, if we're reading this, if we're reading through John, we might read it incorrectly. I've heard people do it time and time again. You get all the way to John chapter 12, verse 23, and you're supposed to read, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and people read it and go, the hour has not yet come. That's what people do. They automatically do that. Why do people do that so much? It's a common error. Here's why. We'll go back to John chapter 2, verse 4. This is when Mary tried to compel Jesus to, to deal with the fact that the Wedding party was out of wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And he went ahead and did it. But he said, My hour has not yet come. And the people there heard him say it. And then we go into chapter 7. Look at this, verse 6, the first part of the verse. Jesus said to his disciples, My time has not yet come. And then we move further into chapter 8 and verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So the language of his hour has not yet come has been said three times in the Gospel of John alone. So as in our journey all the way to chapter 12, his time has not yet come. And we get all the way there, and the Greeks are wanting to talk to him, and it's filtered through Philip and Andrew. They tell Jesus, and they're probably every, all of us are expecting him to say, it's not my time. My time has not yet come. Instead, But he says, the time has come. In fact, let's look at that again. You'll see it uh, all by itself. And Jesus answered him, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There are three times in the Bible where God's audible voice is spoken in the presence of Jesus to validate Jesus. And one of those we're planning to discuss next week. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Time for him to be glorified has now come. It's, it's, a, it's probably not what Andrew and Philip expected him to say. Hey, there's some Greeks who want to talk to you. It's time. That's, that's kind of off the subject, isn't it, Jesus? <laughs> but his timing is his timing. It's not always in sync with ours. So it's interesting that in this moment, this powerful moment, and next week we talk about when God's voice comes and, and speaks validation for Jesus, it, it, there's a distraction that comes just before it. 
Does that ever happen in your life? Just before God does some amazing thing in your life, you're distracted with something and you think you're supposed to be focused on this and then he does this amazing thing. He does that sometimes. And it just shows us his sovereignty and his providence. And it's a cool thing to witness. It's a cool thing to be a part of. And right now in this moment, this is what's happening to Jesus and his disciples. And he speaks some more, and notice how he starts in the next part of our passage. He begins in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wow. Now it's time. And then he, you know, he's talking about himself. They don't know this. Because that's what's going to happen. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, and he's going to come to life. Because seeds don't really die when you put them in the ground. They're still alive and they produce life. Uh, But it's an analogy. Analogies are never perfect. But he's talking about himself, but he's also given a lesson to his people. I would like to give you a quote from Dr. F.B. Meyer. Many people complain of lonely and solitary lives. They account for their condition by supposing it to be due to the failure of other people. It is, however, attributable to the fact that they have never fallen into the ground to die, but have always consulted their own ease and well-being. They have never learned that the cure of loneliness comes from sowing oneself in a grave of daily sacrifice." And so he's making the connection that we should make. And that is that, yes, Jesus died for us. He sacrificed all for us so that we could have abundant life. We are similarly supposed to live that way, sacrificing our own lives, what we want, what we like, for the sake of others. I've mentioned before that the people that are the most pleasant to be around are the people that you feel good when you're around them. These are people that typically put themselves aside. These are people that tend to find good in you and let you know that. These are people that build you up. They don't tear you down. They're the most fun to be around. We like being around people like that. People that are sources of joy and encouragement. These are the kinds of people that are going through life struggles just like everyone else. But that is not primary. They're not the ones that are always complaining about everything. They're the ones that are checking on you. Don't you love those people? It's easy to love those people. Because they're loving us the way Christ loved us. They're putting their issues aside to focus on others. As Philippians 2.3, I don't have it up behind me, says, consider others better than yourselves. That's what they're doing. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them as he plants seeds. Yes, the analogy there is intended in this little speech. He goes further and makes it clearer. John chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're encouraged to be like Christ in that he was willing to give up his life for others. 
It's one of those things that if you stay busy serving Jesus, you will keep yourself out of trouble. You don't have time to get caught up in unnecessary drama. You're too busy serving the Lord. You remember the analogy that Max Lucado gave with the men that went fishing. Uh, they, they planned to go fishing. It was, a, it was a men's retreat. Men in the church got together and they decided they were going to go out on a lake and they were all going to take their boats, you know, and some are sharing others' boats, but they drive out there with their boats and they, they take all their gear and they bring it inside and they hunker down in a cabin because it, the first night it started raining. And that's okay. They had a big pot of chili, you know, and enjoyed that and played cards and laughed, told jokes and enjoyed each other's company. And some of them were kept awake because some of them snored, that sort of thing. But that's okay. They get up the next morning, they're ready to go fishing and it's still raining. So it's all right. We got enough food. We're going to do this. So they just enjoyed each other's company and fellowship and hung out, played games, told stories. It kept raining. And the next day it rained. It just kept raining. And eventually, and I have a rule, by the way, when we go visit family, three days. You're, you're there three days, and then you got to go somewhere because you're going to get on each other's nerves, disrupting their lives, you know. And if people come over and visit us, they stay for a while, three days. Okay, now you go do something on your own because people get sick of each other after three days. That's just my opinion, but... <laughs> So the, so the fishermen began fighting. One of them got in a huff, another one got in a huff, and they took off in their, with their gear and their boats and just left, gave up on fishing. And eventually they all ended up quibbling and not getting along, so they all just took off and left, and nobody went fishing. And the moral of the story is when fishermen don't fish, they fight. <laughs> My experience has been in 35-plus years doing pastoring in churches, the trouble in churches always comes from people who are not about serving the Lord, leading others to Christ, and discipling others. They're not doing that. And because of that, they're stirring trouble. It's where it always comes from. So if you stay busy serving the Lord, you don't have time for unnecessary drama. And Jesus is trying to talk about this sacrificial living when he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're not supposed to love this life on earth. And here, I'm going to give you a quote. I put it together at a guy this week. Say, can I quote you on that? So let me rephrase it. If you're writing it down, put my name on it. When I've said this before, so I put it all together. Here it is for you. And not that I have any wisdom. I'm sure somebody told me these pieces. Although we are granted tastes of heaven here on earth, life is more like hell. If it was more like heaven here, why would we long for something else? Some of you feel it. Some right, right now, you're feeling it. Some, you've got some relationship issues going on in your family. That it's like, why, how did this ever get to this? Some of you got some issues at work. Some of you've got some health things going on. Some of you've got a lot uh, all at once just piling up. And it feels like hell in your life right now. And some of you remember times where it feels like hell on earth. It's supposed to be like that. If this was all supposed to be like heaven all the time, why would we long for something else? 
We get tastes of heaven, and I would like to end on that positive note. We get tastes of heaven. Sometimes we're in, in this room singing. It's a taste of heaven. Sometimes when somebody is leading us in a prayer and we lose track in the middle of the prayer because we get pulled into it, there we are in a conversation with God and the Holy Spirit convicts us and pulls us closer. And it's a taste of heaven. We get to experience some, experience some, some things at church camp. And it tastes like heaven, like everything just falls together in the right place at the right time. And we're moved. We get to hear a missionary speak of what they're doing to the glory of God. And it feels like we're a part of it because we support. And it feels like it's, it's, it's almost like heaven on earth. Good stuff is happening. It's not always like that. Most of the time, Christianity is very, very difficult. I, I didn't talk about this. I'm going to go ahead and throw it in right now because I didn't. I, I, for the, I'm doing well on time, and so I'm going to throw it back in. I took it out so you don't get a slide. There's a song. You can look it up. It's from a group called Whiteheart. Um, it's an interesting thing. Whiteheart was a Christian band. Does anybody know who that is? Raise your hand if you've ever heard. There's two of us. Three? Oh, good. Uh, they were a very successful Christian band. It was a pop band, radio sounding. And uh, the lead singer, unfortunately, committed some crimes that he decided to confess on stage. And law enforcement was there, even though they didn't have any orders to take him away because of what he confessed, they took him away. And it made the news. They were a very, very talented band, very talented singer. So they were without a singer for a while. Billy Smiley was the keyboardist who wrote most of the songs, stepped up to sing. But he wasn't the best of the singers, so he knew this, but he could sing. And the soundboard guy that was in the back was singing along, and somebody heard him singing along and said, you should, uh, you should be on the stage doing that. And he became the lead singer. And the first album they produced, there was a song, I ordered it, I was excited about it because I was saying, this guy can really sing, but he's just a natural. So I got it, it was back when cassettes were a thing, I think everybody here knows what, that, what those were, and I put it in the cassette player and I, I was by myself in a farmhouse, I don't think anybody else was there, and I think the kids were all in school, anyway, I put it in, played, and I listened to a song called Desert Rose, and I had heard it, it already hit the radio. And the song Desert Rose, I hadn't really paid attention to the lyrics. It just was a cool sounding song on Christian radio. I thought, oh, it's a nice song. But I'm listening to it and I'm paying attention to the words because I'm by myself. And I had to stop it. I couldn't do it. It shocked me. This song, it's talking about one of the lines in it is sometimes... Holiness can feel like loneliness. That's the way the song goes. Sometimes in life, when you're standing up for what you know is right, for Christ's sake, it feels like nobody else supports you. It feels like you're the only one doing it. And I was playing a song that's popular on Christian radio. Somebody wrote that must have felt like that, which means I wasn't alone because somebody else felt like that and a whole bunch of other people liked this song. 
I'm not alone. There's a bunch of people that feel like this. So when you felt all alone as you try to stand up for Christ, maybe in your own home, like I was there alone playing that, maybe in your little group, maybe in your family, if you feel very alone as you try to do the right thing and stand up for Christ, you're not alone. It's the way most of us feel when we're doing the same thing. And Jesus is talking about this, like you're supposed to feel that way. He had to do it. He had to go all the way to the cross by himself. Even at one point questioning his father, why have you forsaken me? Because his father had to let him do that on his own. Now the last verse in our text is here. Verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. I love the way he buttoned that up nice and tightly. You're going to have to do do things. You're going to have to die to self alone. But you're not going to be alone. You'll be honored by my father. Your life on earth, it's going to feel like hell. You're going to hate it. But then you get a grand life ahead for eternity. But if you love life here on earth, just satisfying yourself, not putting others first, you won't get that eternal life. All right, so let's look at the why part of today's text. Selflessness illustrated and expected. Got five things and then a little bonus piece. So here we go. Purity of purpose is preferred. Remember the Canaanite woman, very similar to the Greeks. They're approaching Jesus when it's not time, except the Greeks this time, it was time. The Canaanites, the Canaanite woman, kept persisting, and her purity of purpose was exemplary. Even as Jesus really stiff-armed her, she still said, I need you for my daughter. And he said, your faith has, has worked. It was purity. And the Greeks, Philip and Andrew, figured, well, they, they must sincerely be doing this Judaism thing, and they're seeking Jesus. Yeah, everybody wants to talk to Jesus because they heard about Lazarus, but... These these Greeks seem very sincere, so they tell Jesus about it, and he totally changes the subject. He's like, it's time. Wow. Second, God's timing is supreme. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come even though they wanted to arrest him. And now it has come. And when you pray those prayers and you keep feeling like he's not answering, I don't know if you've looked into Psalms very much. I love Psalms. If you do devotional, like daily devotions where you write in a journal, I can give you some pointers on one great way to use the Psalms. Because there's 150 and you can do 150 days. But when you get to Psalm Chapter 6 and 7 is kind of special, where David is feeling like God's not answering him. You know, these people are pursuing me, and I keep praying to you, why don't you hear me? 
I don't see anything or hear anything. Why don't you answer me? And then God gives this analogy where he describes himself as, as he's, David's talking, as sharpening the sword. They did what? Keep talking. And then as he's taking his arrows and lighting them and pulling them back in the bow. So when God is not apparently answering, when you feel like he's not answering, oh, he's getting ready to unleash his power. He's listening and he's watching and he's waiting for the right moment to unleash his power. His timing is perfect. There's so many different things in our lives where many of us have experienced that very thing when we pray and pray and pray and we think, why didn't he do what I thought he was going to do? And then the wonderful thing happens next that wouldn't have happened if he'd have done what we asked the first time. God's timing is supreme. And third, working together works best. Did you notice that? They came to Philip. We're going to use Philip. He's got a Greek name. Maybe, maybe they felt like he was Greek. And then he, what does he do? He goes and gets Andrew. This is a behavior that Jesus has been teaching, working together. It's a, it's a teaching that God had in place from the beginning of time. And if you do discipleship, it usually works best if you're doing it with other people. You like to visit people that are, get sick and are in the hospital, and you can get past all the crazy safety protocols we have to do to visit people in hospitals. If you can do that, take somebody with you. Have you ever done that? You ever, you go to visit somebody, they're going through something, you're going to go to their home and pray with them. It's a good thing. Take somebody with you who's never done that. They'll be talking about it for weeks. And guess what? They're going to want to do that too. And guess what? They're not going to want to do it all by themselves. They're going to want to take somebody with them, just like you did. And guess what we're doing? We're working together, just like Philip and Andrew and all the disciples were taught. Working together works best. So in the church, it's a good idea to do this. Fourth, Christian selflessness benefits many others. When we put others first for the sake of Christ, it glorifies and it honors Christ and it benefits everybody else that's involved. It can be tedious. It can be exhausting. But it's worth it. It's a different story, you know, when, you're, when someone says, I was going through a struggle and you knew about it and you didn't, you didn't call and check on me. That's a different story than I was going through a struggle and you heard about it and you were right at my house knocking on my door. And I didn't have to do it all by myself. You were right there with me. And I knew you had kids to deal with and you had work to deal with and you had those projects you're right in the middle of and you did that. And I'll never forget that. It's a better story. Christian selflessness benefits many others. And five, God is faithful to His faithful ones. (laughs) 
We're, we're reminded that each year as we go through the story of Purim. That's why we do that. Because this is who God is. He is faithful to his faithful ones. When you watch football, and many of us want to watch football today, we want to keep watching even if the Seahawks aren't in it, even if Green Bay's not in it. <laughs> um, when you watch that running back that keeps his legs going after many people have already gotten a hold of him, that's tenacity, and that is what wins. This is God. When we are tenacious with our faith, He is tenacious with us. He is faithful when we are faithful. And here's the bonus part. He will not leave you alone. I say it that way on purpose. It's a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. He will not leave you alone. He will bring others alongside you. He will remind you you're not the only one who's ever felt this way. He will let you know there are people that will help. Even if they just listen to you, so you have somebody to talk to. He will not leave you alone can be understood a different way, meaning he's relentless, meaning that you might not have time for him. You would never say it that way. Maybe you would. Or maybe you just don't really believe that much about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Well, he will not leave you alone. He will persist and relentlessly pursue you. That's who He is. He will not leave you alone. God help us. Because we need it, Lord. Thank you for your persistence, never giving up on us, even when we feel like giving up on ourselves. When others, when it feels like nobody wants to believe in us, you always do. Thank you, Lord, for showing us a small section of Scripture that has so much for each one of us. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for loving us so much. Help us as you reach out to us to reach back to you, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.